this church has been on a bit of an exodus ourselves. And it feels very good to be here at last. This is one of our first Sundays here. And uh, we are encouraged with how God is, is, is working and has worked to bring this to pass. Some of you may know the, the deal that involved us getting this building involved four different churches and two buildings. And if you think it's tough getting a church to buy a building, try it with four churches and two buildings. But God has been very good to us. The overall main point that we decided on for the book of um, Exodus didn't make it to your outline, but you can write it down. It's actually a quote from Pharaoh. Yeah, you don't get many Pharaonic quotes, do you? In the beginning of, of Exodus, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And they really ought to have the, uh, the bad music playing when he says that. Because we all know how that works out for him. The thing we need to bear in mind is that when we don't listen to the Lord, we are in effect saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And we're going to see how the, the Lord uh, deals with that. Some uh, historical background. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The beginning of many things is, is documented in Genesis. Particularly, we see that God chooses one family, one line of descent through which he fulfills his promises. Those are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. <clears throat> it also explains how we end up in Egypt because Joseph, uh, one of Jacob's sons, is sold as a slave into Egypt and ends up as prime minister of the whole country. So Exodus uh, takes up where Genesis leaves off, but it is 400 years later. But one of the key things about Genesis is it means that when we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, we inherit all the promises that God made back in, in Genesis. It's not just dead history. It's actually alive and well. 400 years ago, what was happening in this country 400 years ago? That would be 1616. Where were the pilgrims? Yeah, back in England. <laughs> and about to head for the Netherlands before they were going to head over here. Now, there was a Jamestown colony hanging on by its fingernails. But that's about it. Other than that, it's the Indians and the animals. And that's, uh, that's what's going on in, the, in this country that we live in. It's, uh, how, how many years ago are, do we have to go back to get to the American Revolution? Well, it's, it's, it's getting closer, some 200, 300 years. I didn't figure that one out before speaking. It's just amazing to think that of this gap of 400 years between these two books. That's a, that's a huge culture shift. 
And, we, and you notice that as you read the book of Genesis, it reads differently than Exodus. Uh, 400 years makes a big difference. But Exodus gives us a much more specific picture of who God is. He reveals himself not as God, but as the only true God. He tells us his personal name. He is the I Am, Jehovah, the Lord. And one of the things that he shows in the book of Exodus is his implacable determination to redeem his rebellious creation. All I got to say is I am very glad the Lord is on our side. Because his plan is going through. And there is nothing that will stop him. Sometimes people think of these ancient books as um, being very primitive. That, uh, that they didn't have much in the way of uh, higher thoughts. It's interesting what God gives as his name. When Moses asks God what his name is in the book of, of Exodus, God said, I am who I am. When they ask you who sent me, sent you, tell them, I am sent you. Now that is a philosophical statement. That is not just a play. I mean, it is a play on words, but it is more than that. It's, it's actually saying that of all the creatures and all the beings anywhere, he is the only one who decides what he is. Did you get to decide who you are? Now, I never got to decide how tall I am. I'm, I'm experiencing some decisions about how big I am. And uh, trying to deal with some of, of those issues. Um, but I really didn't get to decide how tall I am. Think, think about how much... Have you got to decide about who you are and what you are? It's, it's, it's really tough to change the way you were born. Plants and animals, everything that we know of as life on this planet, there is one specific molecule that determines what they are, right? It's the DNA molecule. What would happen if somebody unleashed something on your body that started changing your DNA. Well, it's a pretty complex thing, and you would almost surely die. And uh, you can look at something's DNA, and you can realize what kind of a animal or plant or whatever it is. That's all you need, and it determines all of you. So one of the, the interesting discoveries of modern science is that what God said about himself back in Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus is true. He is who he is. And all the rest of us are just what our DNA tells us to be. If that makes any sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a very philosophical statement. And there are things that Genesis, and, excuse me, that Exodus is saying that appear to be individual data points that don't necessarily hang together that well. Well, let me just tell you, 
These guys back then were some of the best thinkers ever, and this book really hangs together well. The problem that we're having is we're not following what it says. And uh, statements like Pharaoh's statements, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, are clear indicators of what Exodus is trying to tell us. Exodus also tells us the beginning of the nation of Israel. We see here that God chooses one nation through which he fulfills his promises. This means that when we become citizens of his kingdom, we inherit all the promises ever made to the nation of Israel and to its king, who is Jesus. These are the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is extremely important in biblical and secular history. That when Jesus talked about his kingdom, which he talked about a lot, this book here is how that kingdom started in terms of on earth. And when we get included in his kingdom, he's including us in what he started here in the book of Exodus. So let me read you how the New Testament interprets these Old Testament writings. See, a lot of us think, okay, here's the Old Testament, and that was this big, mean, scary God. But then, fortunately, we get to the New Testament, and there's this warm, fuzzy, friendly God. And the warm, fuzzy, friendly God makes you feel good about how messed up you are. The mean Old Testament God makes you feel bad about how messed up you are. Okay. We all know that that's a totally wild. Let me read you some about how the New Testament interprets these Old Testament writings. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in, in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples to us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So based on that reading, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. And you're going to have to just shout out the answer here. I've got two mics, see? They're checking out these mics. There's some problems with them. But you guys don't have mics, so you're going to have to shout out the answers. Okay. So how were the people 
in Exodus baptized into Moses. How did that happen? It says here, in the cloud and in the sea. How did that happen? The Red Sea, absolutely. This is talking about the Red Sea. How about in the cloud? What's that talking about? A pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Absolutely. They all ate the same spiritual food. What is that? Manna. Oh, you're getting it now. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, that's more challenging. Hurrah. Yeah. God provided the water. It says, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. What was the spiritual rock that followed them? What is it? Christ. Absolutely. Christ. You're going to find Christ in the book of Exodus if you have eyes to see. He was back there. Then he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this is more than a one word answer. How did this happen? Okay. There were 12 spies sent in to spy out the land, right? Because they had word that there were scary people in the land there and that they were supposed to go into. And so Moses chose 12 spies. Ten of the spies took a quick look and decided, yeah, those giants, we don't want to mess with them. That is too scary. We're not going there. And they brought this report back. And that, that, that persuaded the people that they did not want to go into the promised land. Two of the spies. Who were the other two spies? Joshua and Caleb. They came back and said, no, we, there are giants, but by our God, we can do this. They came back and they said, this is possible. Yes, they're scary giants. But there is God and he's much scarier. So Joshua and Caleb were got of all that generation got to go into the promised land. That whole generation that God, that God led out of Egypt died in the wilderness because they did not what? What is it? They did not believe what God said. Joshua and Caleb believed God. Now, if you think that the book of Exodus is about pleasing God by your works of righteousness, you missed the whole point. God just allowed a whole generation to die to make the point that you are not getting in by your works. If you believe God, you make it. Make sense? Just remember Joshua and Caleb whenever people tell you you've got to be good enough. Now, this is what it says. Now, these things took place as examples to people in olden times. What is it actually saying in, uh, in, in Corinthians? It actually says these were written, these took place as examples for us. Paul is saying Exodus was written to us. 
And he goes on to say, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. He's, he's looking back at what happened during the Exodus and he's saying, okay, that was just not obeying the scary Old Testament God who's mean to you. That was about whether you believe Christ or not. And then again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, Exodus is actually fairly relevant to our situation. It is the beginning of what we have gotten into in terms of being part of God's kingdom. What exactly was uh, happening back in those days? Pharaoh was an anti-God, or if we put that in New Testament terms, he was an anti-Christ. Um, the Egyptians were polytheists. They worshipped animals and forces of nature. One of the most popular gods was Ra. He was the sun god. Um, he's uh, this and. He was often depicted as rays of light coming down from the sun onto the earth. Have you ever seen that where there would, it's like it's sunset and the, there's the sun peeking through the rays of the clouds and you can actually see beams of light coming down? Have you ever seen a building that was made to look like that? We call them pyramids. So you wonder what kind of motivation this God rock could produce in people. Yeah, take a look at the pyramid. There's actually another type of building um, that's actually based on this as well. If you look at the very center rays coming down, and you maybe just look at one ray coming right down in the middle, what does that look like? An obelisk. We don't build obelisks anymore, do we? Anybody ever seen the Washington National Monument? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we think we are so advanced over those primitive people, right? <clears throat> the thing that we need to realize is that this polytheism is alive and well. The, and Exodus is written in a background of polytheism. Much of what is said in the book of Exodus is to combat and tear down polytheism. And it's to uphold monotheism. Why is that important? Well, <clears throat> a few, uh, well, maybe a thousand years after the, the, um, the Exodus, there was uh, another empire that arose, the Roman Empire. And one of these Egyptian gods became a very popular goddess during Roman times. This was a goddess named Isis. Probably never heard of her. During Roman times spread from Egypt all through the Roman Empire, there was a temple of Isis in London. How about that? You think of London as a place for pagan worship? Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, yes it does. She remains popular today as she has been combined into some forms of Christianity as the Madonna. 
Now, if you think I'm being harsh, it's time to wake up. If you look at an ancient statue of Isis and you look at an ancient statue of the Madonna, you have to be an expert to tell them apart. And many of the ancient teachings about Isis were incorporated into things that are taught about the Madonna. I'm not saying anything negative about Mary. Mary was very much honored. But all of this business where she's part of the part of the Godhead and she can forgive you, you know, get your sins forgiven for you. Yeah, no, not Jesus is the way to God, not Mary. And I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but that's really where this comes from. We think that polytheism is a way is a way in the past, but it's not. A popular myth today is that there are many ways to God and that it's intolerant of others to say that Jesus is the only way. Paganism and polytheism are still popular today. Now, just in case I haven't offended enough people, let me try to offend a few more. One of the other things that comes out of the book of Exodus is that God is the ultimate ruler and that his way, his, his things that he says are, um, are not up for discussion, the Ten Commandments, etc. In our country today, we have debate about whether the Ten Commandments is really the law of the land. Do we not? And we say, you're trying to make your religion ahead of everybody else's religion. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got everything to do with God is the Lord. And anybody worshiping another God is worshiping something else. He's not worshiping God. Why is polytheism so popular? Well, when you get to choose your own God, you get to pick and choose between what's right and what's wrong. You become the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. Say, um, say you like getting drunk. Now, hopefully there's nobody here that likes getting drunk. Um, is there an ancient God that promoted getting drunk? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Are there, um, are there popular, popular things out there today that promote getting drunk? Oh, yeah. Well, how about that? How about sex? Anybody think of an ancient God that promoted sex? Oh, yeah. Is that still around today? Very much so. And that's why things like the Ten Commandments become an enemy of the state in our day. It's because I don't care if you're the Congress of the United States. I don't care if you are the President of the United States. I don't care if you're the Supreme Court. Those things are true. And you can have all the votes you want and say they're not, and you're not going to change them any more than you're going to change the law of gravity. Okay. Hopefully I didn't offend too many people with that. So Exodus is where monotheism first broke into the world big time. From Genesis, we know that Adam and Eve well knew there was only one God. But by the time of Moses, polytheism dominated. 
So how does all this relate to Jesus? Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uh, felt that the, the law would not pass away. Well, he said it would not. The, um, in the day, in Jesus' day, they didn't actually use the term Old Testament. Uh, the, the full description was the law and the prophets and the writings. And the word writings is actually where we get the word scripture. So that was how he described the whole Old Testament. Now, if you're just speaking quickly, you might say just the law and the prophets. Or you might just say just the law. But the law proper was the five books of Moses. The prophets were everything up to um, uh, Job or so. And then Job and on was the writings. So when Jesus is saying the law here and will pass that not not a dot of it will pass away until all is accomplished. What he's talking about is these five books of Moses, of which Exodus is a part. And what he is saying is that he will fulfill it. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when you ask yourself the question, what was Jesus doing while he was here? All those different things he did that we look at and we think, why did he do that? Very often, the answer is going to be found back in Exodus. That there was something from Exodus that he was actually fulfilling in his ministry. So that's your historical background. Let's talk about... Um, as God is dealing with the Pharaoh here that says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The first part of his answer is the God who demolishes the house of slavery. And essentially that's in, in uh, Exodus 1 through 15. In summary, the new Pharaoh oppresses the Israelites. God calls Moses as a mediator. God sends the plagues culminating with the death of the firstborn, God drowns Egypt in the Red Sea. So what is our connection to all of this? Our connection to all of this is that we too are slaves, slaves to sin. Israel was, were slaves in Egypt. We are slaves to sin. Uh, Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And you can read the rest of the passage for yourself. But basically what God is doing in Exodus is showing us how he drew Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he is also drawing us out of slavery to sin. So as you look through those first 15 chapters of Jesus, of Exodus, one good question to ask yourself is how, does, what does this say about how, how God is drawing me out of sin? Okay, and then uh, point number two, God is the God who prepares to rebuild. The summary is that uh, this is where we, we saw the manna. This is where there was water from the rock. This is uh, where Israel defeated Amalek. And then there was Jethro's reorganization. So this is, is actually a very key part of the book of Exodus. This is where God starts really making some changes and the people of Israel themselves become more players. Um, I read in the Corinthians about the water of the rock and the manna. The defeat of Amalek is, is interesting. Why is that so interesting? Well, it was because at the Red Sea, who defeated the Egyptians? God did, right? All the Israelites had to do was walk through the, the path that God had made in the water, and then God wiped them out. They really didn't have to do anything. When they fought Amalek, Moses stood up on the mountain holding his hands up in prayer. That's what the picture is, is praying. And Joshua led the army of Israel fighting with Amalek. And as long as Moses' hands stayed up in the air in prayer, Israel triumphed. When Moses' arms got tired, Amalek started winning. So they quick got a couple of guys up there to hold his arms up, right? Does that relate to anything you've ever read in the New Testament? How about pray without ceasing? How about it's the Lord who's going to win this fight for you? So what it's doing is it's showing us how we have to be in the fight, but it still depends on God. Still depends on God. And then there's Jethro's reorganization. And if you remember that, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, come riding up to the camp, and he watches Jethro. Jethro watches Moses trying to answer all the questions that all the people have all day long. And the man is going nuts. He's hardly got time to, to eat or drink. You know, I mean, it's crazy. And Jethro calls him aside and says, Son, you ain't doing it the way you need to be doing it here, see? You got, to, you got to have leaders of fifties and leaders of hundreds and leaders of thousands. And you got to pass the, the decisions down to the top guys and they got to pass it on down. And so Moses listened to his father. And this is actually the first time in the Bible where we find organization depicted as a godly thing. And in fact, something that we need to have. So... We see in the New Testament, as Paul's going around the Mediterranean, he doesn't just preach the gospel. 
he also sets up churches. And he, in each church, he, he makes sure that there are, are elders appointed to, to manage the affairs in the church. Where did he get this idea to actually go around and set up churches? Could he have been thinking about Jethro and Moses? Don't know. But it's, it's a very significant thing. So it's part of God demolishing this house of slavery and getting ready to build his, his house. Now, excuse me, this is God preparing to rebuild. A couple of passages, I won't read them. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, and Ephesians 2, 19. Uh, talk about some of the things that, uh, that God did in this uh, preparing period. And then finally, verse in the, the third point, God who rebuilds his house. What we have in this last part of Exodus is we have Mount Sinai. We have the Ten Commandments. We have lots of laws. We have the building of the tabernacle, the priest's garments and functions, the golden calf renewal of the covenant, tabernacle finished, and the glory fills the tabernacle. Now, there's a lot of detailed stuff in there, and it's really easy to miss the big picture. But here's the big picture. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So all of this about setting up the tabernacle has to do with how God is setting up residence within you. And so as we look at Genesis about all these furnishings of the tabernacle, and all the priests and all the things they did, you should be asking yourself, what does this say about how God works in me? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So you see where Paul sees us putting on this tent. And if you remember your Old Testament the tent eventually becomes the temple. And God is at work in us to, to build that kind of thing in us. And then in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. So just as God gave Israel a new home in his tent, he is giving us a heavenly home, perfect and complete in every way. He, in fact, is making us his glorious home. So how should we apply this? 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and through Jesus Christ. Everything that's said about the tabernacle and about the priesthood in Exodus is applicable to us. Exodus itself is an incredible story of deliverance and freedom. It's the story of a God who loves his people too much to leave them in his sin. It's also the story of an unlikely hero who was so frustrated with these people that he smashed the Ten Commandments and pled with God more than once to release him from his calling. Have you ever felt like that? God, why did you call me? I don't want to even be, I don't even want to talk to these people. It's gross even being around them. I mean, can you understand how Moses felt coming down off that mountain with the Ten Commandments and their worship and the golden calf? And Oh, my goodness. But beyond all of this, we need to recognize that Exodus is our story. As we look at our lives, we discover to our great shame and horror that we were born slaves to sin. And there's nothing we can do to fix it. All our efforts just make it worse. But God loved us and sent the second Moses to deliver us. Though we are not worthy of his deliverance, he paid the penalty. He made the sacrifice for our sin. And he is working within us and through us to make us fit places for his indwelling glory. This gives us hope. Because of his promise, we can face the giants with Caleb and Joshua. I mean, really. Giants, you got to be kidding me. What can they do to you, right? They can kill you and send you to be in glory with Jesus. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> I mean, really. We have Jesus who has actually gone before us. This gives us hope. We can face those giants. He takes our feeble, broken efforts and refines them to gold, silver, and precious stones. What an incredible privilege we have to be living in the time of God's second exodus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for that first exodus when you delivered your people. Such great and marvelous works. And Father, we thank you so much that you have called us to walk with you and that you have uh, come and indwelt us and are working in us to change us. Father, you are our hope and our joy. Father, as we live through this time of the second exodus, where you are, are triumphing over sin in our daily lives, Father, continue your work in us. Mold us into your image. We pray in your son's name. Amen.